Good morning. My thanks again to the worship team for, for leading us in, in the theology of our study this morning to understand who God is, how we relate to him. It's a privilege to be with you all again. It's been a little while. Uh, I'm so grateful to Pastor Andy for allowing me to share in the ministry of the word while he's away. And I'd like to begin by talking about a time in my life when I like to watch scary movies. When I was in college, I went through a phase where I was trying to scare myself, trying to confront my fears, trying to understand them and overcome them. Have you ever had a time in your life like that when you are confronting and trying to understand your fears? Well, as a college student, I actually happened to take a course in modern horror films, which might sound like a cop-out class, but I was a broadcasting minor, and it, it did fit, and it turned out to be an excellent course. Um, I learned a lot about fear, and it's not just a game to play with people's emotions. There's actually, in very good stories, a deep understanding of human psychology to understand how we're made, what makes us afraid. It turns out that we are fearful and frightened in predictable ways. That's something we share in our nature. It's part of human life in a fallen world, is fear. But the question I want to ask and answer this morning is, should fear also be a part of our spiritual lives? Where does fear come into our understanding of and a relationship with God? The Bible talks extensively about something called the fear of the Lord. And we're going to look at one of the passages today that, that deals with this subject. Our topic is in Exodus chapter 19. And what we will see there, Lord willing, is three different things. First of all, we're going to see that God is holy and mighty in power. We're going to see that that power of God's can be terrifying at times. But the man or woman who fears the Lord has nothing to fear. Exodus, chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, We'll pause right there. I'll give you a little bit of context for what we're talking about. You might associate the book of Exodus with the actual Exodus, the time that Israel was in bondage in Egypt and God rescued them. That was the first 15 chapters of the book, was that story of God rescuing his people. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that eventually they're supposed to go to the promised land. That's a big theme throughout the whole of the Old Testament. But there's an important stop they have to make on the way first. And God told them that the stop was coming. In fact, when Moses was confronted with God in the burning bush, God said to him, 
the sign to you will be that you will worship me on this mountain. So we've come to that point now where Israel has come out of Egypt and is now at the mountain where Moses met with God at the burning bush. And so it's a very special place. And God's going to use the mountain to teach both the people of Israel and us something about who he is. And the story today in chapters 19 and 20 are going to revolve around three different times that Moses leaves the people and goes up to God to receive a message and then brings it back down to the people. The mountain organizes our story. And so Moses climbs up the first time. He leaves the people behind, climbs up to God at the top of the mountain. And this is God's first message, beginning in the middle of verse 3. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God has a message that he wants to deliver to the Israelites, but he doesn't deliver it directly. He makes Moses come up the mountain to receive it, and now Moses has to turn back around and go back down the mountain to give it to the people. This is more work than he's been doing. It's been the case that God has been among them, leading Moses, telling Moses what to do. Moses didn't have to go anywhere special like this to talk to God. And God has three things in this first message to tell Israel. And the first of them is this. Look at what I've done for you. Look at, you've seen with your own eyes how I punished the Egyptians who enslaved you with all of these plagues. And I led you out of Egypt across the Red Sea miraculously. And then I crushed the armies behind you. I led you through the wilderness in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, and I fed you manna and quail, giving you water from a rock. Look at all these things that I've done for you. That's the first message. And what strikes me about this is that God has done all of these things without asking anything in return so far. At the beginning of Exodus, God doesn't say, now I will for you if, I have a long list of demands. If you're good enough, then I will let you out. No. If you read the beginning of Exodus, God says that his people were crying out to him. And God had compassion. And his rescue was an answer to prayer. There are no strings attached at this point. He has rescued his people. And now he is saying, look at what I've done for you. You can trust me. Will you enter into a covenant relationship with me? This is the second part of his message. You see, they have a unique relationship already. You know, they're the children of promise, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God wants to take this relationship into the next phase of its development, into this covenant 
that he has yet to describe. And at this point on the mountain, God is saying, I'm not going to tell you what all is involved. You have to trust me. It's kind of a blank check. You must agree to obey, and then I will tell you what that means. Normally, that's probably bad legal advice, but if you have a God you can trust, then it's okay. Now, the third thing is, God is going to do more for them if they do accept this relationship. So it's not as though this is, okay, I've, I've given you this blessing, now pay me back by obeying my commands. No, by obeying and entering into this relationship, God's going to bless them even further. And there are three parts to the blessing. Um, and I like the way that Old Testament scholar Victor P. Hamilton talks about these things. He says, what you see here is a privileged position, this most treasured possession. You see a privileged responsibility as the nation of priests. And you see a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You see an elevated character, a special character like no one else. God wants to take Israel and give them a special identity, a special mission, and a special character to set them apart from the world and to minister to the world. This is God's first message. Now in verse 7, Moses has heard the message and now he's going to go back down the mountain, back to the people, Verse 7, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Good job, Israel. That's the right answer. So now he's got his message and now he's going to climb back up the mountain again. This would be so much simpler if we could just have a phone conversation maybe. But Moses is getting his workout going up to God, back down again, and now he's going up to God for the second message in the story. The people have agreed, and you might think that God's next step would be, here's the covenant. But no, God has a step in between that is important for what he's about to do. He begins explaining in verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain, or even to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch it. No hand shall touch him, the perpetrator, whoever does this. No one's going to touch him. They're going to either stone him or shoot him. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up into the mountain, come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain again to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. And by the way, don't go near a woman. We'll just throw that in there. 
So, God is ready to enter into this covenant relationship with Israel, this next phase of their relationship. But first, God wants them to wait. And he wants them to prepare themselves. And he also wants to prepare himself for a unique way of speaking to the people. You see, God has decided he's going to speak directly to the people this time. It says in verse 9 that the, he wants the people to hear him so that they will obey Moses and believe Moses forever. So God has a special presentation planned for the purpose of building up their faith and enhancing the credibility of the leader that he has put in, before them. Now what he expects from Israel is this. I'm going to wash your clothes. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm assuming most of you have washed your clothes recently. It was a little less often back in those days. This was a special thing for them to wash themselves as a nation together, to have this identity of being clean before God. Now, we don't have any context prior to this to explain what they would have understood as consecration. But we do know that what happens later is that washing your garments by avoiding intimacy, these things prepare you for uh, what's called ceremonial cleanliness, prepare you to take part in official ceremonies with God. So God wants the people prepared together to meet with him. Now, what seems really harsh about this is not the washing of the clothes. It's what's going to happen if anyone touches the mountain because even approaching him clean is not enough for his holiness. Even approaching him clean is not enough to be worthy of being in his presence. You see, God is mighty in power. God is holy. And this God cannot just be approached the way that you would approach another man. The idea that you would kill someone for touching a mountain seems incredibly extreme. And it is. But this is what God's holiness is like. God's holiness is extreme. It's something that we don't normally encounter in our lives. Now, what's fascinating to me here is that it's not just that God's mountain is holy and set apart, that you can't touch it. It's not just the extreme penalty if you do What's fascinating to me is that if someone does touch it, God wants the people of Israel Israel to be responsible for defending God's holiness, for upholding his sanctity. You see, there are times in the Old Testament where God struck someone down directly, whether through pride or through just failing to appreciate the holiness of something like the altar, the Ark of the Covenant tipping. David was furious to see God immediately strike down someone who touched the ark who wasn't supposed to. He failed to appreciate God's holiness. This is different, though. God says, I want you 
to enforce my holiness. You together must be zealous for my holiness, for who I am, my set-apartness. God is holy and mighty in power. And so God has planted this seed in effect, and on the third day it will bear fruit. On the third day we will see what God has planned for his people. And one other thing to note, it's very interesting, the tabernacle that's coming, we don't have a tabernacle yet in this portion. The tabernacle has the holy place and the most holy place, and it's almost as though God is establishing the mountain along similar terms. Here's the courtyard where you all can be, but only the priests who are set apart can be in this holy place. And only the most high priest can come into the most holy place. This is a pattern here on the mountain. So Moses has gone up and down twice, and now it's time for the third day. Beginning in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people of the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. It can be difficult to put your feet in their shoes that day in this quiet auditorium. Mount Pleasant is not this kind of mountain. But imagine if you will, close your eyes if you have to, and picture what it would have been like. You see, the people of Israel have seen mountains before, and they've been camping near this mountain for a few days. They know what it looks like. It's probably blocking a part of the sky along the horizon. It's covered in whatever mountains are covered in. They know what it looks like. But this morning is different. The morning they're supposed to meet God, the mountain is different. It's, it's covered in the thickest, blackest smoke you've ever seen. And if you look closely around the edges, you might be able to see the fire that's fueling it. See, God met Moses through a burning bush, but he's meeting with Israel through a burning mountain, a mountain that is constantly on fire but not consumed. And over the mountain are storm clouds with flashes of lightning arcing back and forth. And the waves of thunder hit you. And you might even be able to feel under your feet the mountain trembling in the distance, like an earthquake that never stops, but without anything breaking. It just keeps trembling, keeps shaking. And the eeriest thing of all this trumpet that seems to come from nowhere and everywhere at once, this trumpet that's inviting you to, to come closer. The people, even back at the camp, trembled. 
Hebrews says, even Moses trembled. This was an awe-inspiring sight. And trembling is a reaction you can't help. Whenever you're confronted with something that's really exciting or really really dangerous or really terrifying, your body produces this adrenaline and you can't stop shaking. It's more than you can handle. You are prepared to either fight or run away, which fighting a mountain is not a good idea. And so, if you can imagine in your life times when you might have been trembling, maybe it was uh, a difficult conversation that you had to have, or maybe you had to confront a wild animal. Uh, maybe it was a good thing. Maybe it was your wedding day. Maybe it was that time that you're next in line on the roller coaster and you've never gone before. You're excited. You're trembling. You can't, you can't help it. They cannot help it. This is an awe-inspiring sight. You see, God is holy and mighty in power, and that power is sometimes terrifying. And they're standing here trembling, and Moses says, come on, God wants to talk to you. And as you walk closer together, the sounds get louder. The rumbling gets stronger. Maybe you even feel the heat from the fire, I don't know, but now you are face to face with this burning mountain and this is the God that you've made a covenant with? What have you done? <laughs> what incredible power. And maybe, even if you're the most rebellious of Israelites, and you're not sure about this Moses guy, you have to give him some credit for walking up to this burning mountain, crossing through the flames into the wall of dark smoke to go speak with this God. That's impressive. That's faith. So Moses goes up for the third time. And now we receive God's third message. And Moses, the Lord said to Moses in verse 21, go down again. I feel bad for Moses. Every time he gets to the top, God says, go back down. <laughs> go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to, the Mount, to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around it and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests or the people break through to come to, up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. With all the fear, with all the awesome power, it strikes me that God's first words are words of concern for his people. Now Moses, I want you to keep my people safe. I don't want anyone to touch the mountain and die. That's not my desire for them. Keep them safe. Even with everything that they've seen, even though most of them don't want to be there at this point. 
He knows there's still a few hotshots down there who can't wait to see God, who are ready to follow Moses even into the burning mountain. But God cares for them, and he says, make sure they don't come up here. And there's some back and forth, and Moses assures God, yes, we've taken the proper precautions. The hot shots can't come through. God says, still, go down and talk to them. And before Moses can deliver this message, he comes down the mountain out of the veil of clouds, the veil of smoke, and God himself speaks directly to the people from behind him. And this is the context where God gives the Ten Commandments for the first time. It's pretty impressive. Maybe they should make a movie or something. Um, Might be a good idea. Now, I'm going to do something that feels very sacrilegious at this point, and I'm going to skip over the Ten Commandments. It's not because they aren't important, but I'm hoping that you know what they are, at least a little bit, and I want to focus on their reaction instead. But I encourage you to read these on your own time, and there's especially one about honoring your father and mother that might be appropriate for today especially. But God speaks from behind Moses, and God is holy and mighty in power, and sometimes that power is terrifying. God, in his power, says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then he gives the next command, and the next command, and the next command. And, And finally, he gets to this thing called coveting, and he says, don't covet anything under any circumstances, anywhere, And we could probably stand to learn from that one as well. We could stand to learn from all of them. And when God delivers that tenth commandment, we see how the people respond in verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sounds of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Verse 20, Moses says to the people, do not fear. Uh, What? (laughs) Come again, Moses? Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people still stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The first time I read this passage, I about jumped out of my seat. I said, how on earth could you possibly say, don't talk to me, God? I don't want to be with you, God. That doesn't make any sense. What we celebrate at Christmas is that God came to be with us. And that Christ is coming again, and one day we will be with God forever. That's our hope. You had a piece of that, and you said, no, thank you. How often have you longed to hear God speak to you directly to say, here's what I want in this situation. Here's maybe an expression of that relationship that we have. They had it. They heard the voice of God, and they said, thanks, but no thanks. How dare you, Israel? 
but I'm missing the point of the passage. I like the idea of God talking to me, but they heard it for themselves. And the whole point was, in this context, being confronted with God's awesome power, it was too much for them. That's a power that I don't often enough appreciate when I think that I would like to hear from God. Now, the key to this passage, if we're trying to understand the fear of the Lord, is here in verse 20. It's after that. In verse 20, when Moses responds, he says, together, in the same breath, do not be afraid. It's just that the Lord wants you to have the fear of the Lord. That does not make any sense to me. Don't be afraid, just be afraid. God doesn't want you to be afraid, he just wants you to fear him. What on earth could that mean? It's the clearest that I have seen in Scripture where this idea of fearing the Lord is somehow separated from being afraid of him. And this brings us to our third point. God is holy and mighty in power, and sometimes that power is terrifying. But the man or woman who fears the Lord has nothing to fear. God does not want you to be afraid of him. But there is something he does want from you called the fear of the Lord. And if we're going to apply this passage, we're going to have to figure out what that is. Now, I would love to point you to a chapter and verse where there's a clear definition of the fear of the Lord. But we don't have one. We have lots of examples. And so we're going to survey a few of them to try and flesh out our understanding of the fear of the Lord. But the first thing we have to know as we go into this is this is not a translator's error. This is not a, a weakness in the language somehow. That word fear, do not fear, and later, that the fear of him, they're the same words in English. They're also the same words in Hebrew. There's no game being played here behind the scenes. God used the word fear through Moses twice. How do we understand this fear that is not afraid? Well, the first thing that I would look Two, the, the first thing that at least we would all recognize is from Proverbs. It's actually in a couple different places. Psalms, Job. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We all know this. We might think that's a definition, but it's not. It's, it's a description. The fear of the Lord is the kind of thing that makes you wise, and it reveals some wisdom in your heart. If you're a wise person, you do this, and it produces more wisdom. But it's not a definition. So, starting with the immediate context here, what would the Israelites have known about fear of the Lord if they knew the story God was telling? Well, the first thing that we see comes in Exodus 1, right at the beginning. Do you remember the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah? The king of Egypt told them to kill the Hebrew boys. But God's word says, they feared the Lord, and so they disobeyed the king. In that context, an authority figure is telling them what to do, but they 
are loyal to a higher authority. They are loyal to God above the king. They fear the Lord. In our immediate context here, just before this engagement on the mountain, Moses' father-in-law has come over to give Moses advice about how to delegate his work, to set up some more judges to help out. And he says, the kind of person you should look for is someone who fears the Lord and hates a bribe. Money can be a very motivating power in our lives. Money can be the sort of thing that causes us to make some poor decisions at times. Some people live their whole lives trying to get more and, and chasing after the people who have it. But the person who fears the Lord is loyal to a higher power. The person who fears the Lord is loyal to him over money, loyal to him over the rich. And perhaps the most famous example so far in Scripture comes from another mountain in the book of Genesis where Abraham holds a knife over his beloved son, the one he had waited for for decades. And he's ready to plunge the knife into his own son. And when the angel of the Lord stops him, what he says is this, Now I know you fear the Lord. See, being a parent, is, it creates such a passionate understanding and feelings about your kids. It's, it's unbelievable at times. Abraham is saying, even above my deepest desires as a father, I fear a higher power. I am loyal to God, not to my own heart. And that is fear of the Lord in his life. Fear of the Lord puts God above all else, all the other things that would direct our paths. That's one piece of the puzzle. What we still don't know yet is why. Why would we fear the Lord? Why should someone fear the Lord? Couldn't it be that Shifra and Pua and Abraham and these other people are afraid of what God will do if they disobey? That's possible. They could have been motivated by fear for doing the wrong thing. But we don't know from the context. So we're going to have to look elsewhere if we want to figure out whether that kind of fear should motivate us. And so a few examples we could see in in the Bible might begin with Job, for example. Do you all remember the scene in God's throne room where Satan comes to accuse and to stir up trouble? And God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. And Satan says, does he fear the Lord for nothing? And you might think the next thing he's going to say is, look at how much you've threatened him. Look at how stern you've been with him. Of course he fears you. No one would cross a God like you. No. No. Satan says, of course he fears you. You've been so nice to him. You've given him all of these things. You've blessed him in every way. Of course he fears you. In Job's life, fear of the Lord is a response to blessing, not to threat. If we turn to Nehemiah, he'd be another example. The book of Nehemiah 
opens with this prayer, Nehemiah pouring his heart out to God. And one of the things he says as he's praying for his people is it's a delight to fear your name. A delight to fear. This is not the cheap thrill that I was getting watching scary movies. Could you imagine delighting in a person that you also were afraid of? Those ideas are not compatible. Those feelings don't fit. How could you delight and fear at the same time? Not in that way. It is a delight to fear God. It should be a delight. That is what the fear of the Lord is, a delight. We can look at the Psalms. One Psalm, Psalm 2514, I believe, says, here, 2414, 2514, I'm sure you're sure that's it. God says, he extends friendship to those who fear him. Fear is not the basis. This kind of fear is not the basis of some animosity, some separation, some disruption in the relationship. No. The fear of the Lord produces friendship with the Lord. And in Psalm 130, verse 4, God says that he extends forgiveness so that we may fear him. Think of it. The forgiveness comes first. And our response to forgiveness is this kind of fear that God wants. Could you imagine, again, feeling afraid of forgiveness? That would be a very complicated emotional situation to be in. Normally, forgiveness is a relief. It brings peace in a relationship. And God says, I forgive you so that you may fear me. This forgiveness brings about this positive thing of fear of the Lord. There's an even clearer example from the New Testament, and I want to read it word for word for you. This is from 1 John chapter 4, in verse 18. John is speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he says, There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What does this mean? Well, first of all, it validates this idea that if you cross God, you should be afraid of him. God is a just God. He punishes evildoers. This is very similar to the language that Paul uses in Romans when he's talking about our civil authorities, the the people who govern our land. And he says, you don't have to be afraid of them unless you break the law. Then be afraid, because God has given them the sword to punish you. That's a picture of this kind of relationship that we have with God. If we cross God, if we are pursuing sin and evil, we should expect to be afraid of God because God is just and good. He punishes evildoers. And we should hope that he does. He is a just God, holy and mighty in power. But for those who are in a perfect relationship with God, those 
who are invited to be a part of this relationship with God. God extends to them a perfect love, a perfect love that casts out all fear. Fear, that kind of fear, is not a part of our love relationship with God. Fear of the Lord is. So what is fear of the Lord? I feel like we're closer now. We know it has to do with loyalty. We know that it's a positive thing and not just being frightened. And I want to offer up the the best definition that I can give you this morning. And that's this. The fear of the Lord is the heartfelt commitment, the heartfelt conviction of God's all-surpassing power. Let me say that again. It is the heartfelt conviction. It comes up from within, and it changes you from the inside out. You are sure from the tips of your toes that this God is all-surpassing in his power. He is almighty. There is no one like him. That is the fear of the Lord. We believe it. We put our trust in him, and it changes our lives. We order our lives to fit his will and his purpose for us. Now, if that's what it is, or something like that, then why did God use the word fear to explain it? I don't know for sure, but the best guess that I can make is this. When we are confronted with something incredibly powerful, that's our natural reaction is fear. If you could imagine with me for a moment that you had climbed up to the top of the towers at Central Michigan, and and maybe you were standing at the very top and you have your toes kind of over the edge, looking down 10, maybe more stories. I forget how tall they are. What is going on inside of you right now? The vast majority of you, unless you're really special, and we could talk afterward if that's you, most of us inside are going to be screaming, back up, get down, don't do that. Why? Is it because that space is any more unstable than this one? I'm actually not all that worried or tipsy standing here. The tower is just as strong and stable. It's not as though gravity were some evil force, some demon that's going to reach up and grab my leg and pull me down. There's nothing there that's against me. It's simply being confronted with this incredible power that's strong enough to destroy me. When you are confronted with that kind of power, the natural reaction is to back up. That's what we do with power in our finite human nature, and that's what we should do with God. God is holy and mighty in power, and that power is sometimes terrifying, but the person who fears the Lord has nothing to fear. Now, why is that? If we were to stand in the camp and we were to tremble at God's presence, how is it that Moses can say, Don't be afraid. The reason is this, this incredibly powerful, all-surpassing, almighty God is a good God. This power is at his command. We don't have to fear him because he says, you are mine. And this incredible power 
will protect you. This incredible power will provide for you. This incredible power will sustain you and guide you. If you are God's, if you fear the Lord, if you belong to him, all of this incredible power is not a threat to you. It's a joy. It's a delight. It's relief. It's hope. For some of us today, we might still struggle with this idea of being afraid of God. And if you have that feeling, I would encourage you to to spend some time in reflection and ask yourself, am I disobeying him in some area of my life that I need to make right? Because when we sin against God, we should be afraid because God wants us to do something different. God wants us to be better. He wants to create in us his holiness. He does not want us to disobey. And so if we feel that fear, we should check ourselves and ask, are we being disobedient? Do we have some reason to fear God? And if so, make that right with him. He offers peace for now. He offers reconciliation. Now, I think more of us are probably in the camp where uh, maybe we're not afraid of God so much. Maybe we have the opposite reaction. We've seen God's power and his goodness, but it's been a while, and our vision of God has shrunk. And we don't realize how awesome he is. He's kind of just always there. We take him for granted. He's there when I want him, and then I can put him back when I don't. That's not the real God. It's not as though it's up to him to impress you again so that you realize, oh, yeah, right, you're that God. It's up to you to reconnect with reality and to recognize, yes, God, you are holy, you are powerful, you are all-surpassing. And I want to conform my life to your will. I want to be loyal to you above all else. If you have never put your trust in this God, understand what he has done for you and how he can make a way for you to be with him. Those who are in Christ benefit from what God did in Jesus Christ. Shift the scene from the burning mountain now to the crucifixion, to the empty tomb. God became one of us, and Jesus perfectly feared the Lord. He did everything that we should have done. He died on the cross so that we would not have to fear punishment, that we could have peace with God, that our sins would be paid for. He rose again, and he's he's coming back to judge the living and the dead, and he's going to establish justice. Now is the time to fear him, to put your trust in him, to not be afraid of him, but to know the delight of fearing his name in that way. The man or woman who fears the Lord has nothing to fear. It is a delight to fear him. He offers friendship to those who fear him and forgiveness so that we might fear him. And my prayer for each of us is that we would walk out of here today knowing that kind of fear just a little bit better. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, we are not worthy to approach you except, except, except that you have invited us, that you are good.
that you have made peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God, we, we get some glimpse of your power here on the mountain and we want to fear you the right way. We want to give you everything. We want to align our will with yours. And so please, God, by your spirit, change us. Make us more like your son. Be honored in our lives that we might fear you the way that you deserve. And Father, we ask this by the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.